This is Kendra Connor, worship leader at Christ Center Church, and you are listening to Christ Centered Cast. Please turn your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Either turn in your copy of God's Word and Scripture, the physical book, or click on it online. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father God, as we begin to look at this idea of values and what we value personally as a church ministry, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see from your word the important things that need to change in our lives and in our hearts, and that you would help us be your people and so that others can see that we are your people, your chosen people. And it's in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, amen. So what do you value when you think of values and you think of what you value personally? Can other people tell? Can they see what you value in your life and with your life? Yes, they can. People can tell because the things that we value are the things that we spend our time on. They take up what we do with the the vast majority of our day or even large chunks of it. People can see what you value through what you spend your money on, where your resources that God has given you go. They can see what you value through what you purchase. They can see what you value through your energy, through what you give yourself to physically, through what wears you out and exhausts you. Those are the things that we value, the things that we spend our time on, that we spend our money on, and that we spend our energy on. And if one looks long enough, it's generally not that difficult to see 
what individual people and what we value with our lives, both with our lives personally as well as in our individual families, what we do at work and our businesses, as well as through our church and the ministries. You see, a watching world can quickly see what we value, and that's why it's so important that as a ministry, we know what we value and we demonstrate those values to the world that is watching. We see we have three core values, and the first of which we're going to look at this week. We'll be rolling out all three over the course of time. In Scripture, we see that the Apostle Peter understood the importance of living in a way that reflects one's values as believers to a watching world. And tonight, that's why we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter, the letter, was commissioned by Peter, but actually written by someone else named Sylvanius. And this was a letter that was penned in Rome to Christians that were living throughout Asia Minor, which is now Turkey today. And the audience was mostly non-Jewish Christians, which will be important as we go through here. You'll see why. Mostly non-Jewish Christians who were being persecuted by others in their communities. And Peter wanted to encourage them and strengthen them amid this persecution and crisis that they were experiencing. And it's that backdrop against which we see three characteristics that make our ministries Christ-centered. Our first value is that we are a Christ-centered ministry, and there are certain characteristics that indicate that, that we're going to see reflected here in Scripture in 1 Peter 2. Three characteristics tonight we'll consider that make our ministries Christ-centered. The very first uh, characteristic that make our ministries Christ-centered here, and when I say ministries, I'm speaking of our church, that we worship together as a church family, as well as the other ministries that we do, like Warrior Women or C3 or even our collective or any of that. Our goal is to value and to make certain that we value, first, the first characteristic is that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. We see some interesting things about what it means to have Jesus Christ be our cornerstone. Now, we're actually going to jump on by verses 1, 2, and 3 of 2 Peter chapter 2. And that's because the way that he arranged the content, he kind of bookends a particular theme there that we're going to visit at the end, which is actually the big idea of the passage itself. So we're going to, we're going to move on by that to verse 4, where we see this, this characteristic of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone and our cornerstone in order for us to be a Christ-centered ministry. He speaks to, again, a largely non-Jewish audience, but he quotes several scripture references here. And as I really chewed on that and tried to figure out why, because when Matthew quotes scripture, Matthew is Jewish, and he was writing to a Jewish audience, he was telling them, hey, remember, when you were growing up in school and you were learning the Old Testament scriptures and those things, you remember when this was said, and he would reiterate it. Or he would explain it, or something like that. But Peter here, again, writing to non-Jewish Christians, I was like, well, why would he do that? Why would he reference literature that they probably never read or had very little familiarity with? And that's when it clicked. And I realized that most likely Peter shared these Old Testament passages, a couple in Isaiah and a reference in Psalms, speaking of Christ as the cornerstone, because he wanted the non-Jewish Christians to understand that this idea of Jesus is not just a New Testament thing. That Jesus is eternal and that he's been there since the beginning and he was referenced in the Old Testament literature as well. Because, I, I mean, based on what we know about Peter, that would seems like something that he would do in his writings. 
So he's communicating with them that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And it goes all the way back to Psalms and Isaiah the prophet, and the prophets. And some interesting things that we see about Christ being the cornerstone is the first characteristic of what makes us Christ-centered is that we know that Christ is cornerstone both in our life and in our ministries when we look at Christ like God looks at Christ. Now, when we look at the text here, we see some interesting things. We see that he looks at him who is one who is chosen and precious. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus Christ, the Son, God looks at the Son and he sees him as chosen. I chose you. I choose you. And he is precious to him. He highly values Christ. He loves Christ. Even though he is one, he is a three in one. And we see throughout Scripture that he loves Christ and he looks at him as one who is chosen and precious. And we see that if Christ is going to be cornerstone in our lives, we too need to have that kind of an affinity for Jesus Christ. We need to love him, we need to choose him, and we need to recognize the precious value that he has in our lives and through a relationship with him. And he's telling these predominantly not Jewish Christians to see him or view him or value him as God does. And he describes them, as he moves through here, as little stones, essentially. He says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. God views him as valuable, precious, chosen. And then he says, you yourselves are like living stones. This idea of there being a cornerstone on which a building is built, that's to maintain a sure and balanced foundation. And then on top of that cornerstone, that first stone that is set, you have a bunch of smaller stones that go into building the structure. And we see that reflected here in Scripture as well. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So he says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's valued. He's precious by God. He's chosen. And you, too, are like little stones that are built upon him. And you're building one large structure, not necessarily a physical church, like we sometimes make the mistake of viewing church as, as a physical building. He's not saying that they are to build a building. He's saying that they are one body, one structure. And we see that imagery throughout the New Testament where Jesus Christ, we see him being referred to or us being referred to as the body of Christ. So if Christ is going to be our cornerstone, we must look at him like God does. We must see him as valued, as precious, as chosen. We must choose him. And then we must grow into his likeness. We must recognize that we too are essentially building blocks of the body of Christ building a structure of sorts, a spiritual structure, and it's growing in his likeness. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house. And then there are some implications for us as believers as we mature and as we look more like Jesus Christ and we grow up in him and like him. That should lead to some action in our lives. And that action we see is that we're called to minister as his priests. So we have this imagery, this picture of a spiritual building that's built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, each of us as individual bricks. And then, of course, when we think about churches and popular culture, we often associate that church with the person or persons who run it, who lead it, right? You get that imagery in your mind of a church, and then there's a pastor or clergy or something there. And he references that here as well. He says that you are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
So we see that we have a job to do as well as part of the church, as part of the building. We also perform ministry. We do ministry. We serve. We offer spiritual sacrifices. Our worship, our gathering together as a church family, that's why I reference it sometimes as an act of sacrifice or an act of worship, because those are synonymous. And we're called to do that. We're called to do that through our time worshiping together. We're called to do that through our service to others, whether it's our church family or even in the community. But we're called to serve, to minister. And that really, that word minister means servant. Those words are interchangeable. So technically, you all, all of us, are all ministers. We're lowercase m ministers, technically, and non-professionally. So we all have that responsibility, that role, to minister as his priests, a holy priesthood. That's also where we get our theology of being able to just go to God through Jesus Christ and not having to go through a physical person. There are some groups theologically that utilize a physical person that they go to in order to speak to God. We don't do that. We believe that we are a priesthood, that we can go to Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, directly. We don't have to go and confess our sins to a person. We can confess them directly to God himself. And we can receive forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. So we see even some important theology that Peter is laying down here as well. So there's a lot going on in terms of Jesus Christ being our cornerstone. There's a lot of awesome imagery here that he is sharing with these believers. And we too, as a ministry, strive to have Jesus Christ be the cornerstone of everything that we do. He is what we build everything upon. The ministry, our service trying to grow in his likeness and help others do the same through the resources that he's given us. Because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He also should be our cornerstone. So the first characteristic we see from this particular text is that Christ is cornerstone. If we're going to have a Christ-centered ministry, we have to have Jesus Christ as our cornerstone, both personally as believers and also as our ministry. The next thing that we see here, the next characteristic that we see Peter reference and talk about here, is that Jesus Christ is not only the cornerstone and our cornerstone, he's also the Savior and our Savior. He goes on to talk about the implications in the next section of having Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we see that if we as people and as a ministry are going to acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have to essentially choose the chooser. We have to choose the chooser. When we look here at verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race. So we are chosen by God. And there's, again, more theology here that can be unpacked about God's sovereignty and how he calls us to salvation. But he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, again, it's important to remember that he's talking to non-Jewish Christians. So this would not be something that should be confusing for them that way. We see in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, Israel, which is different, and there are different dynamics, there are different interactions, they have, there's a different relationship of sorts, and there are different promises involved. And he says here, look, you too are chosen. You are a chosen people as believers. And he says, <clears throat> you are chosen by God to be a royal priesthood. We see that reference again, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And if Jesus Christ is to be our Savior and we're to believe on him, we have to choose the one who's chosen us. 
That is why, unapologetically, theologically, I believe salvation is both. He chooses us, and then we choose him. And I believe it is equal parts both. And there are people that will fight and argue and yell and scream and all that kind of stuff about that sort of thing. I'm not that guy. I won't engage in all of that. But I will say, you know, it's kind of like fruit and fiber. You can't have one without the other, for those of you who are old enough to remember those commercials. You choose, we choose the chooser. He's chosen us. We choose him. We recognize that the Holy Spirit is calling us to God. And then we respond to that call. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but then we choose the one who chose us. We acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Savior. Not only does it involve choosing the chooser, but it also involves proclamation, proclaiming the one who has called us. And he goes on in, in verse one, or excuse me, in verse nine, and he says, Not only are you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, you were chosen so that you can do something. So we have more action here. Peter's an action guy. That's why he's the one who got out of the boat. That's why he's the one who cut the guy's ear off. That's why he did all this kind of stuff, because he says it's important to know it, but then it's important to show it. So that's what we see here. He says, you're chosen. So now that you've been chosen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So you've been chosen, and then you've been called as a result of that choosing. And that calling is a calling to proclaim or to tell others about what Jesus Christ has done in your life, how he has saved you, how you have transitioned from one kingdom to another, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So we have a responsibility if Jesus Christ is our savior, both as people individually, but also corporately through our ministries here. Again, whether it's our church, C3, Warrior Women, Collective, whatever. We are called to, as God's people, proclaim what he has done. And that is that we have been called out of the darkness and into the light, the kingdom of light. His marvelous light. So we see if Christ is our savior, we choose the chooser, we proclaim the one who's called us, and then we also identify as his people. We identify as his people. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He says you didn't have any identity before. But now you do, and that identity is in me. You would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it's interesting that those terms seem to be somewhat equivalent, that we are a people who have received mercy. So he kind of we need to recognize the importance of that mercy that we have received. It's part of our identity. We are people on which God has shown his mercy, also his grace. But here we see this idea of mercy emphasized. So if we're going to recognize that Jesus Christ is our Savior, we need to recognize that God has withheld the things that we deserve, namely separation from him and an eternity in hell for our sin. And that is also part of our identity. So we've been called out of that darkness. We've been called out of having to spend eternity in hell so that we can spend eternity in heaven with him in light. And we've received mercy. We weren't, we didn't have an identity before, but now we do. And our identity is him. Our identity is him. If Christ is our savior, we identify as his people. And that's what Peter talks about throughout here. It's this idea of, again, it goes back to chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. Jesus Christ is Savior. That is the second Christ-centered characteristic that should be indicative of who we are individually as well as corporately. So we see that Jesus Christ is and should be our cornerstone. We see that he is and should be our Savior. And we find our identity in him. 
And then the last Christ-centered characteristic that we see from the scripture, and now we're going to hit those verses that we skipped by for a very good reason. We see that Christ is Lord. If we are to have a Christ-centered ministry, we have to have Jesus Christ as the Lord of everything that we do, both personally and corporately. Jesus Christ is Lord. Why do we skip those first three verses? Because I believe that thematically, they bookend with verses 11 and 12, with 11 and 12 being the big idea of everything that Peter's saying. So he's saying all this stuff, and then 11 and 12 is really the big idea of what his argument here, because he's encouraging them to live a certain way in the midst of their persecution. He says, so you know who Jesus Christ is. You know that your lives and church and everything are built on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. You know that you were called out to Christ, or call it to God through Christ, and now that should impact and affect how you live. And we see that in 11 and 12. But he kind of starts in verses 1 through 3, because he identifies some what we could call today, common vernacular, some toxic traits of Christians, where he says, and most most likely he probably has gotten wind or has heard that there were people, I know, I perished the thought, right, that there were people in church who might act this way. I've never happened, right? Well, of course it happens, and it happened back then too. So he tells them, he begins the chapter with it, almost like, because Peter is very direct and blunt, as we've seen through his actions in the Gospels, right? He just cuts right to the point. And he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Knock it off, guys. Life is hard enough. You're being persecuted by those that don't know Jesus. Stop persecuting each other, essentially. That's my version of it. So he says, put all that away. Remember what it was like when you were a child, an infant, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, or to reflect a spiritual maturity of sorts. Because what you're doing before, you're acting like less than infants. That's not indicative of a relationship with Christ. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he said, you all should know what it means to be a believer. You should live in such a way that is not all those characteristics I just shared. You should know what spiritual maturity, how awesome that is, because you know that God is good, that Jesus Christ is good. So why are you doing all that bad stuff? And when we see this, it all goes back to this idea of Jesus Christ being Lord, or Jesus Christ being the one that we are growing up into, and that we are letting call the shots in our life, and that we are living in such a way that we acknowledge that he is calling the shots in our lives. If Jesus Christ is our Lord, I know for a fact he's not happy when we practice malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and we slander one another. That doesn't honor Jesus Christ. That doesn't say that he's the boss of my life and he's the one calling the shots. That says I'm the boss of my life and I'm the one calling the shots if I think that I can live that way. So it's really a lordship situation. And he opens with that. And what I find interesting about this, when we think in terms of Jesus Christ being the Lord of our lives, the thing that makes Jesus Christ the Lord of our life, or rather, the way that it is most easily seen, because we talked about values right at the beginning. We talked about how it doesn't take long for people to figure out what you value. They look long enough, they're going to see what you spend your time, your energy, and your money on. Well, the same thing here. It doesn't take long to see it, because if Jesus Christ is our Lord, that means we've come to the place, or we're maturing to the place, where we are finding God more pleasing than sin. Finding God more pleasing than sin. Because what does he say here? 
Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, you're born again. You know how awesome salvation is. You know the, how Jesus Christ changes your life. So you need to hold on to that. Hold on to that. Because the way you're acting, the way you're living right now, there are clearly other things that you value more than reflecting that Jesus Christ is good. So he says, put off all these things. Put away all this stuff. <laughs> Remember, hey, if you're saved, you know, live like you know. We find God more pleasing than the sin that we have the opportunity to participate in, whether it's an attitude, an action, whatever. It's acknowledging Jesus Christ is the Lord. He calls the shots. And we find more pleasure in him than we do in that other stuff that we could be doing or saying or, or the way we could be living. Jesus Christ is Lord when we find God more pleasing than sin. He's also Lord when we recognize our sojourner exile status, our alien status. That's an appropriate term here, sojourner exile alien. Because we have a different king, right? He's a different Lord from a different kingdom. So we're not meant to fit in comfortably here. We're meant to be different. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, aliens is an appropriate term to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war, wage war against your soul. So we see here is this idea of the passions of the flesh being indicative of this kingdom. It's a commonplace. And you don't have to watch much television or be on the internet for very long to see that the passions of the flesh are what rule the day here in our current way of life. And it's, it's worldwide. It's not just here in our country. It's throughout the world. Whether those passions of the flesh are anger and war and sexuality and power and all of that. Those are all fleshly things. And those things, when there are pursuits, wage war against the Holy Spirit in our souls when we let those things into our lives and we live that way. So we see here that as aliens, as sojourners and exiles, we're from a different kingdom. We have a different king. We have a different Lord. We're supposed to live in a different way. Others should look at us and say, tourist, right? Have you ever seen somebody walking down the street that you knew wasn't from around here? And, you know, maybe they're dressed a little bit differently or maybe they're not prepared. They've come to Chicagoland in February, February, March, and they don't own a winter coat. And you're like, oh, man, it's going to be rough for that guy. Right. Because one minute it's 50, the next minute it's negative 50. So and if you're not from around here, you don't know that's how it can be. But we, too, should stand out like that in this culture. People who don't know Christ should look at us and go, well, they're kind of a weirdo. And really the question is, do we look like we're not from around here? He says, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh because they cause a war that goes on within your soul. And then he goes on to elaborate more in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now that must have stung a little bit because again, predominantly non-Jewish audience. And if typically you're not Jewish in scripture, what are you considered? Gentile. So imagine reading this text and imagine reading that you're not supposed to live like you don't know Christ and having the word used to describe you there. They must have gone, ooh, ouch, I really do need to look different than the people that I used to hang with, the people that I used to party with, the people that I used to do life with. I really need to stand out. I need to look different because I am different. 
My identity now is not Gentile. My identity is chosen one, is a holy priesthood, is called out one, is one who's possessed. So what we see here is the importance of prioritizing an honorable testimony. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that's about testimony. The idea of water off a duck's back because they produce an oil in their feathers that makes them able to glide and be slick in the water. And we too, as we navigate life, should have essentially a sanctified oil that when people accuse us of sin that we have not done, it just goes right off because our testimony is so strong. It doesn't stick. And that's what he says here. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we're to have Christ-centered ministries, we have to reflect Jesus Christ as Lord. It needs to show up in how we live and what we say and what we do in our attitude. We can't be walking around all malicious and deceitful and hypocritical and envious and slanderous and all of those things. Additionally, we need to avoid the things that wage war against our soul and cause us to be conflicted for Jesus Christ. It's all there, all wrapped up in this idea of living differently, of making sure that Jesus Christ is our King and our Lord, and he's calling the shots because we're from a different kingdom. So when we look at all of these, essentially this first value, which is that we are to be Christ-centered, both with our lives and with our ministries, do you see that value reflected in your own life? Do you see that value reflected in our ministries? And if not, we need to do something about that. Go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. We need to be asking the questions regularly. Is Jesus Christ my cornerstone, the cornerstone of my life? Is he the cornerstone of the ministry in which I serve? And if he's not one of those things, right now in the quietness of your heart, I want to encourage you to commit to Christ that you're going to strive to grow more in his likeness each day, that you're going to be that little stone that sits on the cornerstone. Make Christ your cornerstone. Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Are you born again? Have you given him your life through salvation? And if you have, if you've known Christ for a while, do you live like he's your savior, like you're a chosen one? Do you find your identity in him? Or do you find it in other places? Right now, in the quietness of your heart, commit to Christ with your life. And if you've already done that, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, commit to identify with him. And then proclaim him to others. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Does he call the shots in your life as well as in all of our ministries? If you've been living in a way that is indicative of any of the terms that we looked at tonight, which were not good terms, and if others look at your life and they can't tell that you're any different, if they can't tell that you're a tourist, right now, in the quietness of your heart, make the commitment to Christ that you're going to live in such a way that other people go, that individual is a bit weird. But they're weird in a good way. They're weird in a way 
that shows me that they love the Lord. Make that commitment today. Father God, thank you so much for values and, and the values that we see that show up in Scripture. The way in which we can live so that we can proclaim to others that you've called us to be different. And I ask that you would help us to recognize your ownership of our lives, that we would live in a way that does reflect it, that we would make a commitment and strive to avoid the things that wage war against our soul. And then when others see us, they would recognize that, that we look more like you than we do them. God, thank you for calling us and for giving us the opportunity to choose the one who chose us. It's in your son, who is our cornerstone, who is our Savior, and who is our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless as you go forth to preach, teach, and reach others the gospel of Jesus Christ.